0: The first high priest is Aaron. The last high priest was Caiaphas. We're reading in exodus twenty eight a study on the garments of the priest. the first high priest Aaron, was fitted for his office by the garments that Moses was instructed to make and put upon him. Jesus was fitted by his character he needed no garments to make him qualified to serve as high priest, but Jesus is qualified because of his intrinsic character alone now the uh, the first Aaron sacrificed lambs. The last high priest, Caiaphas, sacrificed the Lamb of God. He spoke prophetically when he said, "It is expedient to should die for the people." And he's enemy of Jesus, and yet it's the prophetic office that he held, he passing judgment upon the last Lamb, the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. For the class but this is so good and I want to read the commentary and I'd like to read to you a quote that he is making from a gentleman who wrote years and years ago in a book very old old book and it's now out of print it says six or a servant of God wrote to a of those who would be uh, regarded as intelligent Christians and who are something more than mere routine readers of the Bible, the types of the tabernacle and its priesthood, its service and its offerings are barren of comfort and edification. Yet it is generally acknowledged that they are pictures by which God would teach his children things otherwise all but incomprehensible. It is generally admitted also that the key to unlock these treasures of spiritual truth lie ready to the hand of every student in the New Testament. Without inquiring particularly why these treasures have fallen into such neglect in our day, the following suggestion is worthy of the consideration of the earnest among us. The real secret of the neglect of the types, says one who is entitled to be heard on this point, I cannot but think it may be in part traced to this that they require more spiritual intelligence than many Christians can bring to them. To apprehend them requires a certain measure of spiritual capacity and habitual exercise in the things of God which all do not possess because they do not abide in fellowship with Jesus. The mere superficial gaze upon the word in these parts brings no corresponding idea to the mind of the reader. The types are indeed pictures, but to understand the picture, we should know something of the reality. The most perfect representation of a steam engine to a south savage would be wholly and hopelessly unintelligible, simply because the reality... The outline of which was presented to him was something to himself unknown. Paul arrests himself in speaking of Christ as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews by reflection that those whom he addressed were incapable of receiving instruction on account of their spiritual childhood. And can't you just faint when you get to that? He said, of which we cannot speak now. And you want to say, speak, speak. <laughs> He is unconscious of the dignity and the inheritance to which he is born, but it is none less a king's child. And so there are many true children of God who seem to remain babes, content apparently that they have life and are children, so they need milk. This accounts for the spiritual feebleness and inactivity of the church in our day. Babes indeed must be fed on milk, but it is not necessary that Christians should continue as babes. May we not, therefore, as the apostle, exhort them to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ and go on to perfection, to manhood, to the the continuation and condition of those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil." June Farrell and I have bemoaned and commiserated with each other so many times about the slimness of the crowd of those who are in of the things of God to come out to Bible study. And it so it is. Most of the church is still on Pablum. And Pablum is good when you're a baby. It's good. I have it and I needed it. It's excellent. However, when you have uh, someone sitting there spoon-feeding a 40-year-old man Pablo, you realize something is out of whack here. And in most churches, people get very upset if you begin to deal in any kind of depth in the Scripture simply because they can't take it. They don't know what you're talking about. I mean, they said, well, I didn't, I didn't understand a word he said, and they didn't. Uh, it's very difficult to accommodate yourself many times to those who cannot receive some meat in the Word and have to have uh, milk. I just told June, I said, uh, she asked me to teach something someplace one time to do something I said yeah I not qualify June Uh, you've got to know something to listen to June Farrell teach I mean you just can't walk in there fresh off the street just been born again and understand too much of what the woman says the finished work, that which God always intended. Remember, God always works in a manner in which he says something. He draws a picture of it and then he does that thing. So therefore, we are looking in our study of the tabernacle and the priesthood at the picture that he drew. And from our side of Calvary, we are within the reality. Now we may go back and look at the blueprints in order to better appreciate what we have. We don't want to go back to what we had before because what we have is better. And that is, in summation, the whole sense of the book of Hebrews. And he just says, we don't want to go back. What we had was good when we had it. It was the best there was, but now something better has come. We have a better uh, priesthood. Christ is a better priesthood. We have a better covenant based on better promises. It's the better book. And so in Hebrews chapters eight, verses four and five, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Speaking of Jesus, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. You see on earth, Jesus couldn't be the priest because because he sprang from Judah. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. Uh, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he came to erect the tabernacle, for he said, See, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mount. So, when Moses received all of his instructions from God, he received also the instructions for the making of the garments of the priest. Now, the priest and his ministrations are all a shadow of heavenly things. So we are interested in what Moses uh put on Aaron in order to understand further that which we have. The priest in robes of glory and beauty were adorned in harmony with his surroundings. You will notice that the the garments are going to be made out of the same materials and stuff that the tabernacle is. They blend in well in the in, in with harmony. Same colors, same materials and the same skilled workmanship. And our uh, text for study this morning is found in Exodus 28. I'll not read the entire chapter, but we will look at the whole chapter. I'm going to read a few <coughs> verses to begin with. In chapter 28 of Exodus, verse 1, Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the sons of Israel, to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithar, Aaron's son. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory, and and for beauty, and you shall speak to all the skilled persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. And these are the garments which he sh- which they shall make. Now let's stop right there and, and and go back to a little bit. You will understand that Moses had no representative of his family within the priesthood. Moses is the one that God speaks to, and yet God chose the inferior brother, Aaron, and Aaron was Moses' inferior, though he was his elder brother, he was inferior to Moses, both in spirit and in character. Uh, Aaron is the one who let the people talk him into making the golden calf. And when he's caught and called on the carpet, he told Moses, he said, it's not my fault. It's all these people's fault. I just threw in the gold and out jumped his calf. It sounds like a kid talking. Aaron was the one that God chose, however, to stand before him and to minister. Aaron's and his sons. For Aaron and his sons together were a priesthood. Aaron could not do it on his own. His sons were not allowed to administer in the Holy of Holies, but his sons were necessary in order for there to be a complete priesthood. Jesus Christ, our high priest, is incomplete without us, his body. For we ourselves are priests, though he himself is the high priest. This verse in in, uh, uh, Exodus here is a lovely expression of grace. Now look at the grace of God who has chosen a man and his family who are far inferior to Moses and his family and yet they are the ones who are selected by God to stand in the the office of the priesthood. We can get a lot of information by looking at the names of these people. Aaron's name means illuminated or lifted up or very high. An appropriate name for the first priest. For Jesus, the great high priest, is that high and lifted up. He has a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And, and Aaron's sons. The, the name Nadab, means willing. Now listen to these names, and they will form a prophetic intimation of the characteristics of the house of which the son is the head. Listen to these names. Nadab means willing. The scripture says, your people, O oh God, will be willing in the day of your power. We are his willing ones. We are the ones who choose to minister in the office of priesthood. Abihu means my father he is. Jesus said to Mary when she called him in the garden, I go to my God and your God, to my father and your father. That was new. They had heard him speak of God as his father, but to consider him as their father was something new. The Israelis, uh, the Hebrews, had no concept of God as their father. And Jesus introduced that concept. He is my father and he is your father. And we know that. The scripture says our heart witnesses with that. It says Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. We recognize. And the name Eliezer means help of God. Oh, that is rich, rich, rich. The help of God. It is God who sustains this company of priests. It is God who is their very source of life. And the name Ithamar means land of the palms. The Scripture says we are as trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. In olden days, as a mark of covenant, men might set up pillars of stones to mark the covenant. The stones would hear and witness the oaths that they made in the covenant. Or they might plant a grove of trees or separate a few sheep as a flock as a witness to the fact that they made the covenant. The Lord says we are that grove of trees that He planted to witness that He made a covenant with His Son on our behalf forever and ever. We are trees of righteousness. And it's interesting that he uses a palm tree. A palm tree is like no other tree. It will grow in places where no other tree will grow to start with. It is a very lofty tree. And so we are those who have been lifted high. We are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We are lofty in righteousness. And the palm tree is always bearing fruit. It has not one fruit season, but it's always bearing fruit. So we are those vehicles by which the Holy Spirit of God exhibits himself in manifested characteristics, showing forth himself as called the fruit of the Spirit. Also, a palm tree was used as ornaments in the temple. Then the top of the pillars of the columns were pictures of palm trees. And a palm tree was always a welcome sight to a weary traveler because he knew that there he would find rest, he would find invigoration, and he would find cool water. The Lord says that each of us will be like princes in the wilderness. We will be like a rock. In, a, in the shadow of a rock in a weary land. We will become like our God, princes in this barren desert of the world, and others will come up under our shade to get a little refreshment. They'll call us on the phone for a little prayer. I got last night about 12 o'clock, the telephone rang. We were all dead, finally. Telephone rang, and there was a voice. I could tell it was a long-distance call, and someone said, Is this that Liz Walker? And I said, Yes, it is. And said, The one that was in Conroe, Texas, or from Conroe, I think she said the one from Conroe, Texas. No, she said in Conroe, Texas. And I have been in Conroe, of course, and I was very hesitant. I thought it was the wrong number. She said, the one that was in such and such and such a church. And I said, yes. She said, well, I need you to pray for me. And I could tell I had a very elderly black lady on the telephone. And I said, well, what do you need me to pray for you about? She said, well, she said, I'm just nervous. And she says, I can't sleep. And uh, the doctors had me on a lot of medicine, but it took it a long time. It didn't seem to do any good, so I just quit taking it. And she went on and on, and I finally realized I had a very elderly, lonely, lonely woman who wasn't even aware probably of what time of the night it was. And she picked up the telephone, and how she got my name and telephone number, I will never know. But she called for prayer. So I talked with her encouraged her and prayed with her. We got off the door. Well, I was fixing to hang the phone. She said, now, do you want me to send you some money? And I said, no, ma'am. I said, i tell you what I would rather you do. I would rather you just rest in the Lord. And the next time you come across somebody who needs to be encouraged, will you encourage them for me? I said, when I needed encouragement in the Lord and needed prayer, someone prayed for me. And I prayed for you. And you can pass it on. And that's what you can do for me. So I talked to her for a while. And, and I was reading this this morning. I was thinking, you know, Lord, there are those who are tired and weary. And they don't really need, and you can't do anything for them. But they need to hear, cool. or they need an oasis. They need to come up under your shadow and rest for a little while. They need a, a cup of the cool water of life to put to their parched lips to remind them, Jesus, they need an oasis is what they need. I think a lot of times fellowships like this one here are oasis of refreshment. That They're not supposed to get great big and have big buildings and big programs and bus ministries and all that and, and, and I thought stuff's alright if you want to do it. But you need to be a place where people can slip in and get refreshed and comfortable and be then go back to their own assigning places and minister to people there. They, they, where they don't feel guilty about not being there all the time. Uh, they need to be able to be rested and be able to slip in and slip out. Uh, uh, for example, one lady came to John that's in our church and, and said, uh, Brother John, can I come to your church and still be Catholic? And he said, Yes, ma'am, you sure can. And you see, you wouldn't find that too many places. Uh folks say, well, if you want to really get right, you would be one of us. No, we, we're we're together because we are one in the Spirit. And we need to gather up together and refresh one another and then separate. Go back into the desert and take the water that we got all soaked up with and go take it to others that aren't strong enough to get to the water and hold, but they're out there dying. They need somebody to come to them. And so we are those trees of righteousness. A palm tree also is one that is remarkable for longevity. A palm tree will live a long, long time, and so we are like palms, like trees of righteousness that live and live and live forever because we've tapped into an underground source. Up in Myrtle, Mississippi, there's an encampment owned by a Baptist church called uh, Camp Zion and it's a marvelous place, and I've gone several years, and uh, there's such liberty and freedom, it's the full gospel movement of the Baptist Church, and, and uh, then there is one there, and it's a lovely, wonderful place to go, and to hear rich, rich word of God, and worship, and praise God, and eat together, and have uh, big dormitories, and you go, it costs you $2.50 for your insurance while you're on the grounds, and that's it, they feed you, they everything is just, you just go, and it's a wonderful thing, and uh, so, anyway, they uh, the the little town, Myrtle, Mississippi, there gave them some difficulties about uh, setting up this big in, uh, church encampment. And so they had a man come and dig a well for them so they could get water. They're not on town water. And they tell me that this well that they have has tapped into an underground river that has its source way off in the Smoky Mountains. Myrtle, Mississippi, is just before you get to the Tennessee line, just down below, uh, the state of Tennessee, and their water comes all the way from way up in the Smoky Mountains. And I think about this. We have tapped in, friends, into an underground river that has its source in another realm. And we are drawing water, and when it doesn't cost us a dime. Myrtle, uh, Camp Zion doesn't pay a penny for its water because it has its own well, and that's you and me. We've tapped into the well. That little lady last night has been used to folks that were selling that water. That water can't be sold. That water is given away and given away because it is endless. And those young men's names tell us a lot about the character of this priesthood. Now, Aaron and his sons with him formed one ministry in the priest office, even though Aaron was the only one that wore the garments of glory. The other priest wore the simple white tunic that we'll see in a minute. Aaron only wore the garments of glory, but he was not considered to be a full priesthood without his sons. So the Lord himself has the intrinsic glory that belongs to Him. But He Himself has decreed that He will not be complete without us. His priesthood involves us. Now it said that you will make them holy garments. Now as you read on, you will find that there are... Two sets of garments, really. Uh, they were, uh, one set was provided that was worn just on the Day of Atonement, and it was the simple linen tunic with the sash. Uh, but the other garment was called the ephod, and it was worn, uh, all day, uh, every day, except on the Day of Atonement, then Aaron would lay aside his garments of glory. He was fitted for the office, Aaron was, by reason of his garments. They dignified his person, and they covered him with glory and beauty that he did not possess in himself. And Moses put that on him. You know, the scripture says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that doesn't come from us, but we are clothed upon with it. So Aaron was clothed upon with garments of beauty and glory that fitted him for his office. Now, Jesus, however, himself, was fitted by his character with the glory and the beauty of Almighty God from eternity. He laid aside his garments of glory and beauty, says it in Philippians uh, chapter 2, in order that he might humble himself and become a partaker of our humanity, in order that he might suffer the extreme humiliation, the death of the cross. Now, this office added dignity to Aaron, great dignity. That it was not his. But Jesus dignified the office. He brought the dignity of his own person. You see, character, not clothes, fitted Jesus for his office. Aaron was fitted by his clothes, but Jesus was fitted by his character. Now, there are seven garments in all, and they are listed in verse 4. These are the garments which shall be made, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a tunic of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. And uh, then it goes on later, and we will find that there is one more piece of uh of the garments, uh, of the outfit, and that was the uh, emblem across the forehead. Seven garments, and they typify the various powers and, you know, responsibilities that was associated with the office. Now, the list in verse 4 that I just read begins, as always, God always begins with the most important first, and that is the breastplate. But we are going to begin as Aaron would dress himself with the first piece of clothing he would put upon him and will work outside to the best, to the uh, most important. Now, the first is found in verse 7, and that's the coat of linen. Now, the linen is spoken of in Revelation as a picture of the righteous acts or the righteousness of the saints. It was embroidered. It was a very simple linen uh, robe. It was embroidered. And the word that's used here, it doesn't mean just to embroider on the outside. It's more like the word da- damask, or da- how do you say it, damask or damask? Uh, damas. It means it was worked into it. And the, it was worked with uh, threads of blue and of gold uh, blue, of uh, red, and of purple. And it was literally worked into. It was kind of like it was quilted. And it was down into the garment itself. So it just wasn't on the surface, but it was down as a participation within to the material. And it was no ordinary coat. It was a glorious thing. Most of the people's clothing were very neutral colored. They didn't have a lot of color and splash because they were very poor people you'll understand and to have uh, these things were very costly and so Aaron would stand out in these in this beautiful clothes it was embroidered and worked into it and it wasn't it was not an ordinary coat and understand this Jesus was no ordinary man he was quite different his blood was different from any other and uh the scripture said though he was found in the fashion as a man that's, that's quite a difference there. He was found in humanity, but he was God joined to humanity. Uh, this linen is not the kind of linen that you and I think of when we think linen. In fact, the art of making this linen, this linen disappeared with the fall of the Egyptian dynasties. And uh, archaeologists have come across little rotted remnants of this material when they have dug into these tombs. No one knows how to make it. It was a very skilled and perfected art. And the historians tell us that it was made more closely aligned to our silk than it is to the linen that we consider now. It was a very fine, fine, expensive cloth, more close to a silk than it is to what we think of linen. Look, if you will, in Revelation 1 and that marvelous vision that John has of Jesus in which he saw him clothed in a garment that reached to his feet. It says that he saw him girded um, and he was clothed in a robe that reached to his feet. This is the high priest robe. That's uh, chapter 1, verse 13. It is referring to the robe of dignity that a priest or a judge wore because the judge was the priest. And Jesus, in this vision that John has of him on Patmos Isle, was robed in the long robe that the priest would wear. Now it was also this word uh, uh, coat. It is the same word that is translated in Genesis of the uh, garment that God made for Adam and Eve. Let me say something real cute about that. You said the word skins. Do you notice that that word is not in the plural in Genesis? We would say it skins in the Hebrew and in the trans- most of the translation. It is skin. It means that one sacrifice was sufficient for both. Jesus, the one sacrifice sufficient for all. He made them garments or cloaks or coats of skin. One skin was sufficient for all. One lamb, one sacrifice. After he made uh, purification for sin and one sacrifice, he sat down. One is enough, not only for our sins, but the sin of the whole world. Uh, it was... Uh, it was the, the undergarment. Now, the rest of the priest, Aaron's son, wore only this one garment. That's what they wore. Aaron had an addition to that, but this was the clothing of the priest himself. It, um, They had a... Um, it, this garment was put upon them. They didn't dress themselves. They appeared, by the way, naked. They had to divest themselves of everything that they had owned before they could be clothed upon. That's very significant. Now, they had to be washed, and then they had to be dressed. They didn't dress themselves. Aaron, I mean, Moses dressed them himself. He put these clothes upon them. And so it was of Jesus. Uh, Rather, not so with Jesus. Jesus, when he divested himself of all that he had with the Father in eternity, he was holy himself. They became holy, separated when they had, were, had this garment put on them, but Jesus was holy in His intrinsic self, in His own nature, Himself. I have a note here for Zechariah 3. I'll not require that you look that up. Let's see what, what's in Zechariah 3. I think that is where Joshua stood in filthy garments. Ja, uh, Zechariah 3. And verse 3 and 4. Yes, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. It's a vision that he had. And he was standing before the angel and he spoke and said, uh, Remove the filthy garments from him. And then he said, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. It makes you think of when the prodigal son came home and the father sent the servant said, Go get the best robe and put upon him. Get these off of him that stink of swine and smell of the, of the pits and the places where he's been, of cheap perfume and of the horror of life. Don't allow him to walk through. Do you know something? When the prodigal son came home, he started to make his little speech, and Dad interrupted him before he got started. And the father ran out to meet him, and he put him put him on fresh clothing, put shoes on his feet. You know, no slave wore shoes. But the father put shoes on his feet, put the best robe upon him, put the, the ring upon his hand. And do you know what he was doing? He said, son, we're fixing to go through town, and I don't want them to see what you have been. When they see you, they will see only me, for I put the best suit I have on you. I put a good pair of shoes on you, and I've given you my credit card. That ring was a credit card. He said, I don't want you to have to come back every time you need some shaving lotion or a pair of handkerchiefs or a pair of socks or something to have to get some money. But until you can get on your feet and have some money of your own, here's my credit card, my ring I put on your hand. The Father has made provision for us. He dressed those priests in those, that linen garment, and they became holy separated. Jesus was holy and separated in his intrinsic person. And, and this in and, and, uh, Zechariah showed that the, uh, the high priest was filthy. They took the filthy garments off, just as they did in Aaron's son. Took what they had been wearing through the desert off and put upon them the robes that bespoke of righteousness and holiness. Paul uh, speaks to us of, of, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the next thing that he had was a sash or a belt, or if they called it a girdle, it was a it was sash. Now, it's not the same one they speak of, over in verse 8. That's, there's two sashes here. This is the first sash. And it was uh, attached uh, to the uh, undergarment. It was part of it. And it was not seen on the high priest except on the day of atonement. Understand, he's going to have this, uh, or this will be under something. The other priest, you can see it on them, but on the high priest, it's only on the day of atonement you see. Now, a belt in Bible days was not to hold your bitches up because they didn't wear bitches. A belt was in order that you might reach down and pull up your long skirts and tuck it in your belt To make your arms and your uh, feet free for work. A belt spoke of work or it spoke of war. It was either to free your feet and arms from the entanglement of your flowing garments or it was to hang your weapons on. It spoke of war or it spoke of work. Now, this girdle that was the sash that the the priest wore spoke of service. It spoke of the symbol of being ready for action. It it says, gird up your loins. To gird up your loins, you wear your belt around your loins at your waist. To gird up your loins means you are ready to run or to, to fight or to flee. You are ready. Uh, You know, they say when the adrenaline begins to pump, it means you're ready to fight or to flee. And that's what it means when it says gird up the loins of your mind. He said get ready to do some real hard thinking now. I want you to gird up the loins of your mind. You're going to do some thinking. It also says in uh, uh, Ephesians 6, uh, put on the, uh, uh, gird yourself with truth. That means put on the girdle of truth. Truth will free you to work. Truth will free you to get on with the business. But if you don't have that, You'll get all entangled in your garments and you'll fall on your face. You must have truth. It's the girdle of truth. Being girded with truth. Truth is the Word of God. In John 13, and we won't go, I could, I'll not finish today. I can see that right now. But we'll, we're gonna stay at it. In John 13, we see Jesus who is fulfilling the type of this. John 13 is where He, knowing that all things had been given to Him by the Father, knowing that He'd come from God and was going back, He rose from supper laid aside His garments. He girded Himself with a towel with a long linen swath of material in order to serve. The priest is a servant. We are priests. We serve God before men. And we serve men before God. And the priests were girded with this to make themselves ready. It speaks... Oh, and by the way, in John 13... And you just turn that. That's just too good. We're going to do this. John 13... It gives us a seven-fold perfection for our service. I want you to look at this. This is delicious. Number one, Jesus did seven things. You know, seven is the number of maturity or fullness. It means it's done, it's over, uh, it's ripe. Jesus, uh, the Lord rested on the seventh day because there was nothing else to do. It's all done Perfect. It's full. Listen to this. Number one, he rose from supper. Number two, he laid aside his garments. Philippians speaks of that. says that he laid aside his glory. He descended in order that he might lift us up. Number three, he took a towel or a linen cloth. Number four, he girded himself. Number five, he poured water into a basin. Number six, he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now that word "wash" there is the very same word that's used in Revelation chapter one, where it says, "Unto Jesus the firstborn of the uh, of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us, or washed us, or loosed us from our sins. That's the very same word. He washed their feet. He has washed us from our sins. He's loosed us, turned us loose, liberated us from the bondage that we were in. Uh, number seven, and he wiped them with the towel wherewith he was girded, sevenfold perfections of the actions of Jesus in the service of the priesthood. And why? Because he knew something. He was girded with a towel, with truth. He knew that his hour had come. He knew that he came from God. He knew that he was going back to God. Friends, when you've got your loins girded up with truth, you're ready to serve. When you know who you are, When you know yourself, when you know your position in Jesus Christ, you can afford to serve others who don't know who you are. When you know who you are, you don't have to go around passing out your business card. You know, Liz Walker, Prophet at large. uh, And listen, folks pass out those cards just like that, you know, a prophetic ministry. You don't have to do that. If you know that God is invested in you, you don't care whether others know or not. You know it. Their ignorance of it, you don't need them to shore up your own assurance. And when you need people to understand, it means that you aren't too sure yourself. And Jesus knew some things. He had truth. He knew who he was. And so, therefore, he was able to serve. He wiped them with his feet. Look, if you will, at Luke in chapter 12. And you can just take down these chapters if you want to. Uh, And verse 37 says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find only alert when he comes. Boy, I like that. King James says, "Watching." I believe. It means only alert. I mean, no snoozing here with your mind wide awake. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come and wait on them. Can you believe it? He said, those who've got their ears on, their eyes are wide awake. They have their head on straight. They're sober. They're not reeling and runking and going to sleep. They know who they are. He said, the Lord himself will gird himself and serve them. Revelation 1 and chapter 1 and verse 13. Oh, that's where Jesus is spoken of being robed. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 5 says, Also, righteousness will be the belt or the gird or the sash about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. I mean, faithfulness and righteousness readies him for service and it readies him for war. The nature of the girdle is truth. It is the word of God. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. It is our priestly equipment for our service. First Peter and 1, in chapter 13, says. Wait a second. I'll get it. First Peter 1, and um, verse 13, says. Therefore, gird up your minds for action. Keep sober. Fix your hope. That means anchor it. Hope doesn't mean... Something that you don't mean wish. It means that sure, unshakable knowledge that most certainly will be. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't be moved from it at all. Once you do that, you know who you are. You know you're God. You're ready for service. You're ready for action. You're ready to fight. You're ready to minister to others. Now, the robe. Next piece that we look at is called the robe of the ephod. The ephod, we're going to see in a minute, but the next layer of clothing, and this is only for the high priest, is the robe of the ephod. You'll find it's spoken of in verse 31. It was made all of blue, which speaks of the country of the origin of this priesthood. It's all heavenly. This is the first time the word robe is used in the scriptures, by the way. When you find, come across a word in the scriptures and you have a a, a passage that gives you difficulties, go back to the first time it was used. When we see Jesus standing in the last book in a robe, we don't know what that means. Go back to the first time the word robe is found and see what it means there. That's the key to the interpretation. And this is the first place that the robe is used in the scripture. It speaks of the garment that is used for the purpose of covering, and it's worn as a symbol of office or a symbol of authority. And it, it means dignity. It means royalty. As as, as a judge, uh, let me read to you very quickly from First Samuel and twenty-four, verse four. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord saith unto you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then David rose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Have you ever wondered why he did that? By the way, people are so dainty and so nice. Paul went into uh, Saul went into the cave not to take a nap. It said he went and covered his feet. He went in there to go to the bathroom. He had on a robe. He went in there and then got and covered his feet. I mean, that's what he went in there. And this, the New American Standard says, he went in to relieve himself. And uh, people are so gamey. And why? you ever wonder what was the significance? Why did uh, David cut off the edge of his robe? He was telling him, your robe is your symbol of authority. And I cut off the end of it. You, That robe has been taken from you and I know it. I know it. I have broke, breached the authority. God has breached the authority. I won't do it because God's already done it. But you have no right to rule because uh, God has given me the anointing to be king. You are no longer rightfully king, and I know it. And I have taken off a piece of your robe. It was it was what he was something he was saying. Ezekiel twenty-six, and in chapter uh, twenty-six and verse. 16, I don't remember what that is. Let's look. Ezekiel 26 and verse 16. Then all the princes of the sea will go down from their thrones, remove their robes, and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling, and they will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be appalled at you. It's speaking of the judgment on the city of Tyre. They'll take off their robe. It means they are in mourning. They no longer have authority. Job, and in chapter 29... Let's have a quick look at that. Job and chapter 29 and verse 14. Did I say 29? Yeah. Verse 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. You see the in the... Uh, um, The imagery of the author. He's speaking of clothing himself in the dignity of his justice, of his righteousness. Now, it also reminds us of Jesus, who is after the order not of the priesthood of Aaron, which was a passing priesthood, but he's after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you see, Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi, and you can't be a priest if you aren't born of Levi. You can be the most holy uh, 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 Benjaminite in the country, but you can't be a priest. Uh, You can only be a priest If you're born of Levi, you can be a rotten man, but if you're born of Levi, you can still be a priest. But Jesus is a priest. It's a higher order than Aaron. Aaron's was from father to son, from father to son. But Jesus, his order of priesthood is after an unending life. For Melchizedek is the picture of Jesus' priesthood. Remember Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, the king of Salem, the place that was to be in later times known as Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Salem means peace, king of righteousness, king of peace. And when Abraham went off to the wars to rescue Lot after he had been captured, he uh, met Melchizedek coming out of Jerusalem that was in the hands of the Jebusites then. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, this upset the Jews greatly. They never knew what to do with Melchizedek. I mean, he came out with bread and he came out with wine like a priest. But, I mean, the man did not have a temple. Melchizedek, where is your temple? Every priest. Must have a temple. He didn't have a temple. Melchizedek, who is your father? I mean, you can't be a priest unless you know who your father is. Did you come from Aaron? Did you come through Levi? I mean, you must be of the right tribe. And Melchizedek, where is your offering? A priest has to have an offering. He can never be seen without an offering. Aaron came, but not without blood. And here's this strange fellow, Melchizedek, that drove him bonkers because he didn't have any genealogy. I mean, they didn't know who his mom and his papa was. Uh, it wasn't that he didn't have one, but they don't have any record of it. All the Jews they meticulously kept their genealogies. He didn't, he didn't have any genealogy. He didn't have a temple. I mean, he didn't have an offering. And Abraham, Abraham ties to him. And the lesser always ties to the greater. I mean, Abraham acknowledged him as the rightful king. And not only that, he was a king priest. Now, that cannot be that. It is unfair. It's illegal. If it You only be a king if you come from Judah. You can only be a priest if you come from the uh, tribe of Levi through Aaron. And Melchizedek blows the whole idea. Yet Abraham gave tithes to him. And not only that, but the way the Jews thought Levi, though he was not born yet, Levi was the great-great-grandson of Abraham. Levi was inside the loins of Abraham, and according to the Jewish way of thinking, gave tithes to to Melchizedek when Abraham did. drove the Jews crazy. But Jesus, you see, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. No father and no mother. I'm in an endless life. Where's your temple, Jesus? Well, it's in the Spirit. I mean, it's a people. You know, it's, it's, it's got a stone here and a stone there. And, you know, where's your sacrifice, Jesus? There's no more sacrifice. I just come out with bread and wine. I say, let's sit down and have covenant together. Let's have church. Let's fellowship. Let's shout a little bit. We just sit down over here on the side of the road under this palm tree and have a little church. I mean, it drove them bananas. But this priesthood, this rogue priesthood, speaks of a royalty. And the blue color of it speaks of that. It speaks of peace. Jesus is the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. Now, on the hem of this robe of the ephod, there was sewn pomegranate made and sewn out of the material that the robe was made of. They were embroidered with scarlet and with blue and with purple. And they were hung and there would be a, a pomegranate and then a little golden bell and a pomegranate and a bell alternating all around the edge of the robe of the ephod. So there was a uh, pomegranate and a bell, pomegranate and a bell. And as he walked, you always heard the tinkle, 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 tinkle. You heard him. There was a sound of Aaron being in the premises of the tabernacle all the time. This was not on the robes of his sons, only on the robe of the high priest. Now, this is the sweetest thing. We've spoken of this before, but I'll repeat it for the sake of the tape. This is the sweetest thing. The pomegranate is the fruit of Canaan. Remember when the Jews began to complain of the leeks and the onions and the garlic and the cucumbers and the melons that they had in Egypt? All of those fruits grow very close to the ground. The cucumbers and the melons grow close to the earth. Leeks and onions and garlic are actually roots in the earth. But the palm granite, it grows on a tree high and lifted up above the earth. All oh, the earthy things are back in Egypt. And they stink and they smell. But the pomegranate is full of seeds. It's just full of seeds. And each seed floats in a crimson bath of red liquid. all oh, the sweet blood of Jesus Christ. And we are full of seeds. We produce, produce. The pomegranate was a symbol of life because it had so much seed in it. And so it would eat it and it would run and you can't eat. Have you ever tried to eat one without it running down your chin? I mean, the juice just goes everywhere. And the pomegranate was sown on Aaron's robe, the hymn, as a symbol of the abundant multitude of life that was in this ultimate priesthood. It is the fruit of Canaan. Canaan is a picture of walking in the fullness of the Holy Ghost. Egypt is a picture of the world. We don't want the fruit of the world anymore. All that grows close to the ground anyway. It's earthy. It's of the dust, that which received the curse. But this grows high and lofty where the sweet winds of the Holy Ghost can blow around it and keep it cooled off. And so the fruits of Canaan are lifted off the ground and the bell now speaks of righteousness. It is buffered by the fruit of peace. The pomegranate speaks of peace. It's full of fruit. It gives more and more. It's got plenty. eat. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be harassed. You're at peace. You're at rest. And the bell speaks of righteousness, for it gives a clear little tinkle, unmingled sound. With its tongue of musical speech, it sings out loud. Now, the activities of the high priest, our high priest, will cause his heart to be heard in our spirit. His sound is heard. And on the day of Pentecost, what happened? There was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. And the sound came up on the temple enclosure where those people were. That sound that they tell me that a hurricane sounds like 50 freight trains. There was this horrible sound, this great sound that came. The great golden bell of eternity. Then to go dong, dong and it rushed down and it filled that little gathering group and it went inside them like tongues of fire. The same cloud that they followed under in the wilderness moved on the inside of them. And all of a sudden the bell began to ding, 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 ding out of them. They began to go down. The bell came. And so it was that the bell speaks of the sound of the fruits of righteousness. That when the high priest moves about, the sound will be heard. And I want you to know the Lord said that my sheep hear my voice. Hearing the sound of the fruit of peace is evidence of being a member of this priesthood. You hear it. I pointed out before that Corinthians gives us a real sweet picture of the, of the ornamentation on the robe of the ephod of the priest. For so we have 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which speaks of tongues. And we have chapter 14, which speaks of tongues. And in between them, we have the little, that's, we have the little palm granite of love the fruit of love so we got a bell chapter 12 and a pomegranate chapter 12 13 and another bell now if we don't have that love paul said you're just a clanging bell two bells banging together clang clang bong 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 but you put a pomegranate in the middle of it and it muffles it you get tinkle 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 tinkle. it's just a sweet little sound then his uh if the robe of ephod was was hemmed with this, and everywhere he went, you heard that sound and that move. Now, on Pentecost, his, heard, his sound was heard, and his fruit was seen, and 3,000 souls saved. There we had, on the day Pentecost, the palm granite full of seeds, 3,000 of them, and the bell with them speaking and exalting and psalming God and speaking of his glorious works. Now, this robe of the ephod was all of one piece. It was woven from the top to the bottom with a woven binding around the neck. Do you remember that Jesus' article of clothing that was one piece and they had to uh, gamble over it to get it? It was his garment, his clothing that he wore. And remember this when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to present sacrifice, he took this off, this one-piece garment. He did not wear it in there. And so it was that when Jesus, the Lamb, was laying upon the altar for sacrifice, he did not wear the one-piece garment either. It was taken and laid aside, and they gambled over it. Now, um, let's see. In this ephod, this robe of the ephod was made of two materials, gold and fine linen. No, no, no. I'm speaking of the, the ephod here. I'm not speaking of the, of the um, robe of the ephod. Let's look at the ephod itself. There was, Now, remember, the undergarment is the um, linen coat. There was the sash. There was the robe of the ephod. And now we're going to look at the ephod itself. The ephod was made of two materials, gold and fine linen. It was in colors of blue and also scarlet and purple or emblazoned upon it and interlaced with the gold. Now, the gold was beaten into very fine threads and it was woven into it and it made this very strong, very sturdy, because it was made of material and metal itself. It was very beautiful. The goal was for strength and, and the glory of the beauty of the colors was blended in every part of it, and it gave firmness and brilliancy to the whole fabric. It was two pieces that was folded over, and it was gathered, joined together at the shoulders, and it was bound by a a uh, strap upon which were placed two on each shoulder two onyx stones. Now it actually was just a little pocket and inside the pocket something was put and it was placed upon the chest of the high priest. It was uh, had a blue lace belt that tied it, wrapped it around and tied it to the high priest so it wouldn't wiggle and move about and it went onto the front and onto the back and it was held on the place there. It was, uh, the, the lace wasn't loose but it, or it was attached. It was a part of it. It was a continuation of the weaving and it was all one piece. Piece. and the ephod and the uh, the girdle or the binding piece and the breastplate were united together. They became one piece, so they didn't take it off one at a time. It, all three of those pieces came off together. Now, the breastplate, this is the only time this is used in Scripture, and this word is used, and it was made as the same material as the ephod, and it was coupled, and it, as I said, it made a bag, and uh, it was called the ornament of decision. And upon this breastplate, there were placed in three rows of... Uh, the uh, jewels, who has that picture? Where did we wind up with the book? Here it is. There was the uh, jewels that were placed on it. One jewel for each of the tribes. Three rows uh, of uh, three stones each. Is that right? Four rows. I'm sorry, four rows of three stones each. Because it was twelve stones. Four rows of three stones each were placed upon it and they were set in golden settings so that they would not move or attach. You didn't have to worry about them being, them falling off or coming out of place. Uh, the, uh, onyx, let's see where I, I said something about the onyx. The onyx was not what we consider as onyx today. Onyx today is not a pretty stone. This is, the word means flashes of fire. So it was a very beautiful stone. On the shoulder of the ephod, the pieces, was placed that onyx, set in gold ouches, it's called in the King James. I believe it was a gold setting, a gold filigree setting, so that the stones would not wiggle. And six of the tribes, the names of the tribes, were engraved on one stone. Six of the na- names were engraved on the other stone. Now, they were not painted on. They were etched in and engraved on. Uh, they were tattooed in, much like the Scripture said, you are tattooed uh, on my palm of my hand. Uh, you know, I'll never forget you. And also, they were there for security. Now, when something is on the shoulder... Uh, it speaks of, um, it speaks of strength. You, you, you put your shoulder to the wheel. It speaks of strength. It speaks also of security. Uh, listen, I want to read a few scriptures to you. You don't have to turn to these. Luke, um, I think that must be Luke fifteen five, and I've typed over it, so I'm not real sure. Let me see real quick. These are are, all these scriptures are well worth the reading. Um, Yeah, he's talking about the shepherd who lost the one sheep, and he had the ninety and nine, and he goes out and he said, and when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, and he brings it home rejoicing. Isaiah nine. And in chapter 6 speaks of Jesus and the wonderful names that he has been given. It says that a child will be born to us and a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government. It speaks of, of of that which bears and puts its shoulder to the wheel. It bears the work of the day. First Peter chapter 1, and I've got a... Exclamation mark. I don't know what it is. Um, we'll just forget that, that one. I don't know what it was. 2 Timothy 1 and 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Because he considered me faithful, putting me into his servant. Shoulder speaks of the strengthening, of bearing something upon your shoulder. Uh, also, let me read this to you. The, now, the stones on the shoulder, uh, in those stones, his strength is seen. You see, we are born on his shoulders. And it is his strength that holds us up. It isn't our strength that's in question. It's his strength. And Isaiah and chapter 22 is one of my very favorite verses of Scripture. Isaiah in chapters 22 look at verse, well look at verse 22. It says, I'll set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. It means the authority of of ordering the house of David which is the kingly house will be on the shoulders of this one. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. We have that quoted again in Revelation chapter 3. It says, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. Oh, I love that. Like a nail in a sure place, it says in the King James. Jesus is a nail in a sure place. You can hang something on him and it will not fall. You can hang all your hopes on him. You can hang your eternity on him. You can hang all of that you know on Jesus Christ, on his shoulders, for he bears it. It will not move. uh, The names were not just written, they were engraved, which means they could not be erased. Remember what it says in Scripture, He that overcomes, I'll not blot his name out to the book of life. They're engraved there. They're there forever. They're set in gold. It's impossible for them to slip out of place and be lost. Uh, So it is with us. You don't have to worry about falling out of Jesus, honey. God has engraved you. He sets you in a setting of gold that's holding on you. We are held by the power of the Holy Ghost. We are guarded and kept by Him, kept by the Holy Spirit Himself. Now, the this. the twelve stones that were placed on the breastplate on the uh, chest of the high priest bore one of the tribes on each stone, having it uh, etched in there. And it was twelve different stones. Now up here on the shoulders, they were the same two stones, just divided in strength. But down here, each tribe had his own stone. God likes variety. No stone was alike. Now you realize that those stones, they did not find, pick those up in the desert. Those jewels that are listed, some of them came from far away in the depths of the sea. Some of them came from far distant lands. Some of them had been mined out of the earth. Some of them were found like the, uh, in, in different places. It tells me that God has drawn His priesthood from far and wide. Some came from here. Some came from there. Some were born again sitting on a church pew. Some heard the call of the Spirit of God in a nightclub. Others heard it here. Others heard it there. But we all heard the same voice. God loves variety. Don't try to be like somebody else. Be yourself. For no one can display the character of God like you can because you're the only one God has. He threw away the mold and broke it. He doesn't want another you. He has a you. And you are the one that shows forth him in your personality and in your character. Now, this ephod was bound with gold gold rings and it was chained onto him. It was with little loops of chain. In other words, these people were represented by each stone. They were bound to the heart of the high priest with chains of gold. So it is that we are bound to the heart of our high priest. He bears us on his shoulders, and he bears us on his heart, and we are bound to his heart with chains of gold that have been wrought in the fire of affliction and tested. The ephod, with its shoulder stones and breastplate, form peculiarly the prophetic dress of the high priest. The prophetic dress of the high priest. For you will see in chapter 28 that inside... That pocket, that pouch, underneath the stones was something was placed. Let me read to you a few scriptures. Leviticus 8 and 8. And then he placed the breastplate on him, Moses did on Aaron. And in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim. In Numbers 27 and verse 21... Numbers 27, verse 21. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And at his command they shall go out, and his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with them, them and all the congregation. Look at 1 Samuel, chapter 28, and verse 6. Says when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by Thummim or by prophets. First Samuel and twenty one, and verse twenty two, speaks of David. It say, uh, no, just First Samuel twenty one and First Samuel twenty two. Now let me stop here to say this: in the pocket was placed two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. We do not know what they are. The word mean Urim means light. And thummim means perfections, lights and perfections. The only thing we know, the high priest wore them in the pocket of his breast. We well, read over and over in the scripture where it says that so and so inquired of the Lord. Inquired of the Lord. The term to inquire of the Lord means the usage of the urim and the thummim, which could only be done by the high priest, and only the king could request the usage of Urim and Thummim by the high priest. No other priest, no other man, no other inhabitant of the nation could inquire of the Lord except the king and the high priest. Now, many speculations have gone forth about what they are. It could be any number of things. Some have said it was a white stone and a uh, black stone, which could be very well true because it was used by ancients in methods of judgment. The white stone meaning a yes, the black stone meaning uh, no. Uh, the stones were on his heart, remember. Now, the judgment was coming from the heart. The picture is this judgment is coming from the heart because the stones are on the heart of the high priest. But the stone, how it was used to make judgment, we are not told. Uh, Evidently, we don't need to know. You know, in Revelation it said, He that overcomes, I will give a white stone. Uh, To give a white stone meant you were accepted. Have you ever heard of being being blackballed from a society? That meant that uh, too many. if you wanted to vote, what they did, so you didn't have to show your vote, you went by and you put a black ball in the uh, bowl if you were against and a white ball if you were for. And, you know, if you had more black balls and white balls and you didn't get it, you were black And so, uh, white stone speaks of acceptance. It was also given with a new and secret, powerful name by many pagan peoples when you came into your manhood, when you were, uh, came into your majority, when you were ex- accepted as a, an adult in the tribe, you were given a new name, a secret name, which was great medicine. And you were given a white stone. Uh, it was used as, by the Romans, for the dole uh, their system of welfare you had so many stones and you had the white stone when you presented your stone you were given so much goods uh, or provisions it was used in, in many many different areas and the Lord makes a play on words in many things in Revelation when he says I'll give you a white stone many of those things it was put on your heart it was used to cast lots also you know it says the lot. Uh, I love this in in, um, in Proverbs I think it's Proverbs 23 I love this it's a uh, verse scripture that never did do too much for me until I heard somebody, and I can't remember who now, give their interpretation of that. It may have been, who um, who's this fellow that was here recently? Uh, evangelist here at our church? May have been him. Not uh, uh, not Campbell. May have been Campbell or the other one. I'm not sure. Mr. Matheny maybe. Anyway, it says in, uh, Proverbs 23 and verse I thought it was 23, maybe it was 21. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but, um, where does it say that? 20? That's not it. Maybe it's 26. But the, the, uh, the interpretation thereof is of the Lord. That's how the, the, the scripture says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the interpretation thereof is of the Lord. But he, he defined it this way. He said, the, and the lot is, um, Okay, what they do the the those Arabs they have on that wool long robe and they would squat down like this and they would sit like that when they sat down they had a, their skirt would make a uh, a table and they'd throw those lots in that um, in that table every knee of every sheep has a little two little bones in it that they'd use for lots because there's six sides to those knee bones. And, you know, you've heard them roll those bones. That's where it came from. The ancients took the knee bone of a of a sheep and would use it for gambling, for dices. And they would rattle those bones and throw them. That's where it came from. But this fellow says his interpretation of that scripture is that man throws the dice, but God makes spots come up. I love that. Yeah, man throws the dice, but God makes the spots come up. And so I thought that was so rich. But that was the, and that may be some of the play on words with the Urim and some, it could have been something. But whatever it was, it was used to determine the mind of God. And however they did it, we don't know. Now I want to refer you to a story. Do you remember when David, escaping from Saul, came, uh, that Nob. Nob was a village of high priests that lived there. The high priest at that time, and it's found in First Samuel twenty one, Nob was the city of the priest and David is escaping from Saul. Now remember this, David had two problems, two character flaws. He loved women and he was a liar. An habitual liar. He lied, 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 lied. He was always, couldn't trust God, he had to lie and work it out himself. So David escaped Saul, and remember when he comes to Abimelech, uh, Himelech, the high priest, and he asked him, said, I'm on an errand for Saul. And Ahimelech said, Well, where's the, your band of men? You've never come without uh, a band of men with you. he had always had a company. And he'd been on many errands for Saul. And David lied. He said, Oh, I, I left them holding the horses out there under the trees. He said, And I came in here on this message, uh, Aaron for Saul. He said, uh, uh, We're on a, our, on a trip, and what we need is some food, some provision. Do you have any food? And uh, Ahimelech said, Well, no. He so, said, All I have is the bread on the table of show bread that we're fixing to exchange and put fresh bread. So I know it was on Saturday, the Sabbath, because that's when they did it. And David said, that'll do fine just give me that and so Ahimelech gave it to him and David said "Uh, by the way I'd like to inquire of the Lord and so Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him you remember that Later on, Saul called in Ahimelech when he realized that David had escaped. And he said, you old fool, you are against me because you inquired of the Lord. You realize how hard, the reason Saul was so mad at the high priest. Nobody could inquire of the Lord except the king. But now poor old Ahimelech, he didn't know anything about court intrigues. David had come many times on errands for Saul. In fact, he said, well, you sent him this in the first time you sent him. But this time David came on his own and Saul that madness and went into a rage because he thought that the high priest was acknowledging David as king because he inquired of the Lord for him. The other times he had inquired of the Lord for David, it was simply on Saul's command. And remember that Doeg was there. And the, that day, and with the Edomite, and they had hated the Israelites, and he was a mercenary, soldier of fortune. He was hired to be Saul's chief shepherd, but he didn't forget the enmity of years back, and he told, and Saul sent word, uh, Saul sent Doeg, and it was Saul instructed his own men to kill that high priest. And they wouldn't do it. They knew better. That was God's high priest. But Doeg, he didn't care anything about God's high priest. He didn't know anything about it. He's an Edomite. And so he said, I'll kill him. He had killed him. And then he went and wiped out the whole village, remember? And everybody was killed except one young boy who happened, oh, the providence of God, who happened to be out picking blackberries or something that day. And he was the heir apparent to the priesthood. The next in line for the high priest happened not to be home that day. When he came home, you can imagine the horror that met him with the whole village dead, goats, dogs, babies kids, cats, dogs, everything. And you know, he did the most peculiar thing. It says that he escaped into the wilderness to David, but he went into the tabernacle and he got the ephod. Man, I would have split immediately. He stayed to get the ephod. He took the ephod and he escaped to David. But now, after studying this, I learned why. Because in the ephod was the breastplate in which was Urim and Thummim. And David had the mind of God in the wilderness, and Saul didn't in the castle. So David was, every time you say David inquired the Lord, David had all the increments of royalty. He had the high priest, he had Urim and Thummim, because the high priest had the ephod. So therefore, you can see why Saul was so enraged against David, because he had it. Now, the final thing, and you've seen this before, but but look at it again, it's so good. (laughs) So, good. Look in John chapter 1. What is Urim and Thummim? And we don't know what they did with it, how they handled it, but just for us, what is the ultimate of the Urim and the Thummim? John chapter 1. There came a man, verse 6, sent from God, whose name was John. He came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he may bear witness of the light. There was the true thummum. That's the Greek word. It means thummum. There was the thummum, urum. It reads, there was the true light. The word true is thummum. The word light is urum. True is perfection. Light. Light's in perfection. There was the true urum and thummum. Who is the true urum and thummum? It's Jesus. Well, where on earth do you find Urim and Thummim? Look down into verse 18. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Urim and Thummim is always found in the bosom. Jesus is the Urim and the Thummim. He is the mind of God. He is the wisdom of God. We don't cast lots anymore. The last time the lot was cast was when they were waiting before day Pentecost when they chose Messiah. After the Holy Spirit has come inside and to abide within, they feel like you've got sense enough to know you don't cast lots. You don't put out fleeces. You don't put out making signs. You are led from within. We used to be led from without, but the cloud has moved inside now. We have Urim and Thummim lives inside us. The Urim and Thummim on the inside of the breastplate, the high priest. His name is Counselor, says Isaiah. That's one of his names. He is, the, he is the counsel of God. He doesn't have some counsel. He doesn't have some wisdom. He is made unto us wisdom. He is Counselor. Not some counsel, but he's the counsel of God Himself. His name is the Counselor. Colossians 2, and in verse 3. How much time do we have? Do we have any time left? Uh, Wide open, huh? When my throat starts hurting, I feel like I'm getting close. Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 3 says... Uh, Let's back up. um, Well, let's just start at the beginning. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Do you realize that you're rich? In understanding the tabernacle, giving you full understanding, you're rich, it's wealth. There is great wealth that comes from full understanding and revealing a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the Urim and the Thummim. He is the wisdom of God. I'm going to stop here. And... uh, well, let's see. We, we've got, I'll go on a little bit longer. We've got a little bit more tape on there. We'll go on a little further. Okay, we'll, we'll see if we can finish it. Are y'all tired? Oh God. Okay, we'll go ahead and finish it. The next piece of uh, clothing and the garments is the mitre and the bonnet. Now, the bonnet was a head dress, and it was kind of like a turban. In fact, the word that's used to translate it is otherwise used as flower and it was a turban that they wrapped around their head. It was a a, a thing of fine linen. It was wound on the head. It's also translated in another place, diadem. You know, we speak of diadem or, or a crown. It speaks of that. The high priest wore something else with it. All the other priests wore this this bonnet. Now the regular priests, the sons of Aaron, wore the bonnet, they wore the long linen coat, and they wore the sash. But the high priest wore all the rest. Now in the let me let me mention this. This is interesting. In the Old Testament, where did I write that down? Okay. In the Old Testament, men covered their head saying, I am a great sinner. I need a covering. I can't appear before God without a covering. I must have a covering on my head. But they uncovered their feet. Remember when Moses stood on Sinai? The Lord said, Take off your shoes. Why? Slaves don't wear shoes. You know, says, well, I'm going to uh, walk all over, put on my golden shoes, and walk all over God's heaven. Slaves don't wear shoes; only free men wear shoes. And so God told Moses, "Take off your shoes. You're standing before the king. You're on holy ground." So in the Old Testament, men covered their head. They still do. The Jews will cover their hair to pray, head to pray, to cover the head. Said, "I'm a great sinner. I need a covering. I need an atonement." And they uncovered their feet. But in the New Testament, men uncover their head. No longer do men make a statement by covering their head when they pray, saying, I'm a great sinner. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, it would dishonor their head. Their head is Jesus. The finished work has come. So men don't pray now with their head covered. But in the Old Testament, they covered their head and uncovered their feet. In the New Testament, they uncover their head, but they cover their feet. What is the foot? It's the final. It's the end says that a woman shouldn't pray without her head covered. Why? Because it dishonors her husband. She needs to have authority or power on her head. What is the woman? When God got through making the woman, he didn't make anything else. It's the period. It says, it is finished. In the Old Testament, men covered their head, uncovered their feet. In the New Testament, men uncover their head and cover their feet. A woman's hair is her covering. said, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. It meant that I was deliberately taking upon myself self-effacement. I am showing you that I am submitted to God. But for a woman, her hair is her glory. It's okay for her to get perms and curls and stick it out and curl it up and make it look good to her. It's a covering. And in their custom of their day and their culture, a woman wore long hair. And the woman's hair is God's period at the end of his creation. What are do you doing to get through building a house? So well what, what does First Corinthians say? Christ, Christ's head, his foundation. The word head means like head of the corner cornerstone. That's what the words translate. Christ head is God. The head of Christ is God. And the head of man is Christ. and the head of the woman is man. So what do you do when we get through building a building? And you put a roof on it. It means the end, over. it's covered. So therefore, in the New Testament, men uncover their head. for well, they know straight they don't have to acknowledge I need a covering, the covering has come. And they uncover their feet. That's the end. That's the finish. That's Jesus work in the woman. So her hair is her covering. Isn't that sweet? Mm-hmm. Old Testament and New Testament. The bonnet meant to lift or to elevate. You know, when you wear a hat, you don't bow your head down. You can't see anything but a hat. You have a hat. You lift your head up so your hat can be seen. It means to be elevated. Lift up your head. Your redemption draws now. It means look up. Lift up your head. And the head always denotes wisdom. You know, Jesus is pictured in Revelation 1 as having hair white as snow. When you're old enough to have some white hair, you're supposed to be long, live long enough to know something. It indicates wisdom. Judges wear the little wigs, you know. If you're a judge, you get to wear a big wig. If you're a lawyer in England, you get to wear a little pigtail. But at least wisdom is here. This is wisdom he's going to judge. Jesus is pictured as the great judge in Revelation chapter 1. His great wisdom. And so they wore white, they didn't have white hair. They had a white head covering. It meant wisdom. The wisdom of God is seen here. And then the high priest wore what is called a crown or a mitre. And it was a piece of beaten gold that was secured across his forehead by a blue lace ribbon. And it said, holiness unto the Lord. It speaks again of the mindset. Remember the scripture says that uh, in the time of time in Jerusalem when... Uh, Uh, Even the uh, bridles on the horses and the cooking pots will say holiness to the Lord. It means every place is going to be a holy of holies. I mean, there's no place. You go to the kitchen and cook, it's a holy of holies. You get out into the stable and take care of the animals. Every place is going to be the holy of holies. The whole world is going to We live in the holy of holies. And in uh, (coughs) Jeremiah, it speaks of having a whore's forehead brassy forehead. She couldn't even be ashamed. The scripture said, you people are stiff-necked and a hard forehead, a brass forehead. But this forehead says holiness to the Lord. It means that from the innermost being of this man's thought processes have been set aside as holiness to God. It's a crown of rejoicing. We speak of crowns. It means something that's set on the head that calls attention to the person. Now, the uh, Aaron's son or the coat the girdle, the bonnets, uh, they didn't have any ornaments or embroidery. They appeared in pure white. The scripture says there will be a great multitude of wearing linen robes with priests. The high priest, though, appears in all of his glory. We've got a crown on our... Remember the 24 elders in Revelation 4, 3, 4, spoken of having crowns on their head? That's what it means. It doesn't mean like a crown. It means holiness to the Lord, a golden emblem that says holiness to the Lord (coughs) let's read a few scriptures Isaiah 61 and verse 10 says I will rejoice greatly in the Lord my soul will exalt in my God for he's clothed me with garments of salvation he's wrapped me with a robe as of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland now that literally means as a priest decks himself with his ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, we are pictured as the priest who have bedecked ourselves with the beautiful garment. Galatians 3.27 says, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Uh, Revelation speaks of has as being marked in the forehead, uh, marked with 666, or marked with the word Lamb, holiness unto the Lord. Now there's one more thing, and this is sweet, one more thing. Found in uh, chapter 28, verses 42 and 43. I'm going to read those. It says, uh, chapter 28 of uh, of Exodus. I shall put, uh, beginning with verses uh, 41. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them. They may serve me as priests. And you shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. They had on underwear. The priest wore underwear. And I don't know about the rest of the fellows, but the priest wore underwear. And understand this. They were to appear before Moses with the underwear on. They would take off all their other dirty clothes. But they put the underwear on before they came to Moses. Now, here's a picture of the altar. And you see the little ramp that goes up there before the altar? They had to walk up to the altar to get up high enough to be able to serve it. And the Lord said, I don't want you to come up on my altar with your bare bottom showing. Okay. First of all, it was to reach from the loins. The loins speaks of sensuality. It was the seat of desire, the ancients thought. It speaks of the flesh. And the loins, that speaks of your strength, strong as the thigh of an ox, now the legs of a man. The Lord says, do not expose to me your sensuality or your strength when you come to offer upon my altar. You have your flesh... Covered up before you come to my altar. It looked kind of like Bermuda shorts. When they came into the holy place or they ministered at the incense altar inside the holy place, they were to have on their underwear. Now, much of the idol worship was sexual and was sensual. And uh, so the, and the Lord says, Do not appear to me with your buttocks exposed. You cover your body up when you come before You be dressed holy. The worshiper of the true God must worship in the beauty of holiness. No flesh must be exposed in the office of the priesthood. Whoever draws near to God must have his guilt covered. The coat speaks of the holiness of the heart that beats beneath it. The girdle speaks of the holiness of service. The mitre or the crown speaks of the holiness of thought, and the linen breeches speaks of the holiness of the flesh. It means we are overcomers. We have overcome. We put that on. It is worn when we all flesh must be kept out of sight in the administration of priestly duties all flesh. They presented themselves having their flesh covered before they were adorned with garments that fitted them for priestly service. Many people are unable to minister as priest because they don't have the flesh in hand. The flesh must be taken care of. Then you come having your flesh covered and conquered and you will be clothed upon for priestly service. Father, we thank you for the garments of the priest and what they teach us about walking in the kingdom. We bless you, O oh God, for the wisdom that thought it all out. Truly, our God, you are wisdom. We honor you and we delight to know you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.